Yes, all aboard. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. And the train is building up ahead of steam. So grab your ticket. It's free. Get on board. This train will be picking up passengers along the way. Taking you on a sports journey. So, enjoy the ride. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your conductor, Anthony Smith. Anthony Smith here with A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor. Just want to let you know that this podcast is listener supported. That's right, driven by you, the listener, who wants to support. So click on that support button down there. You have three options, 99 cents a month, $4.99 a month, or $9.99 a month. We'll get your ad rent on this podcast. So click the support button. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Once again, Anthony Smith with the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Hey, what's happening? It's Rick Thomas with Running the Table, and you already know you are on board the A-Train. Hang on for the ride. Welcome into the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. Your conductor, Anthony Smith, as I always say, this train is building up ahead of steam and picking up passengers. And my passenger today, he's well known in the city of Wichita and probably a whole lot of points beyond. He is currently host or co-host. I say he's the host and everybody else is just a tag along of the drive that you can hear from four to six Monday through Friday. Also a well-known colonist, unfortunately, the Wichita Eagle isn't what it used to be. And I miss those columns he used to write. Sometimes they were controversial. Sometimes I would say it came off as Rush Limbaugh. But the one thing you could never say about this man, he never printed a lie and he never told a lie. My good friend, Bob Lutz. Bob, welcome on board. Anthony, I've never been compared to Rush Limbaugh uh, before. Uh, so thank you, I guess, I, although not really. But thank you for having me on your podcast today. I thank you for being on. I, I've had the opportunity to talk to others. I've had Coach Schartz, Coach Martineau. And I always say, if I can get Bob loose, because one of the things I remember growing up listening to radio talk shows I would listen to the syndicated guys, but it wasn't nothing like listening to your local guys. And I remember, I believe it started out with you and Bruce Hurdle. I would listen to you guys. And then y'all go to a place called Side Pockets. I'm like, I want to go meet these guys because I always wanted to put the face with the voice so I knew exactly who it was I was dealing with. And the one thing I can say about you, Bob, is you've always been the same, whether it was writing newspaper columns, on the radio, even to today, you're still the same, Bob, and that's what I like about you. You never change, and you're very entertaining. So tell me what got you started first, whether it been writing newspaper columns 
in the radio. What got you started? What was the motivation behind your start? Well, I, I was a newspaper person long before I was a radio person, but actually, when I was a kid, I was I wanted to be a radio play-by-play -play announcer, and uh, that was kind of a dream. And uh, as life evolves, sometimes our dreams don't always come to fruition, but I to uh, get into journalism, found out I had a little bit of a aptitude for being able to write and and that's kind of that's kind of where my career went i was uh lucky enough to always kind of sports talk radio never did the play-by-play -play that i <clears throat> really dreamed of doing when i was a child but uh i think combined i've done about 21 years now of uh sports talk radio in the wichita market and uh that that fits my personality well and i've enjoyed I've enjoyed it. I've had an opportunity to have a career that that I've really enjoyed, and, and uh, so I'm a lucky guy, Anthony. And one thing I noticed even today, as I listen to your show, you're able to pull in a lot of guests, and whether it be local guests or national guests, I mean, and everything isn't always sports-related. You bring musicians on you bring band members on it's like you have this connection how did you get to that i have to say how did you get to that plateau because you're touching you're reaching out to people that even people on the national level don't reach out to well i appreciate that you know uh when we went when we set out to do this show and we've been doing it now a little over uh five years almost five and a half years uh, the goal was to be different and not just be a traditional sports talk show. So we do include pop culture, entertainment, music, movies. Uh, we have Mike Furches on every week, who's a local guy who really uh, knows pop culture and is an interesting guy to talk to. And then Jack Oliver, our friend from KEYN, has been tremendously helpful in finding best for us from the national level entertainers. I mean, we've talked uh, we've talked to all kinds of people uh, that, that even having an opportunity to talk to because of Jack's connections, and uh, we've kind of become that show that you listen to, and you never you, we the, we hope you never quite know what we're going to give you on a daily basis. We hope that uh, to surprise our listeners from time to time, and then and uh, keep them engaged. I will say this about the show. It reminds me of a slogan that they have at a racetrack. It says, we'll, I think it says something like this. We'll save you a seat, but you'll only need the edge. So I have to say in a good, in a good way, your show keeps us on the edge of our seats because we don't know what we'll get from time to time. And that's the good thing. Because if you, if you become too predictable, then you become stagnant. And the one thing I can say about the drive is it's never – stagnant now i have to ask you this question you and jeff i hear a lot jeff, of comments i kind of know what question you're already gonna ask I, I hear a lot of comments about the banter going on between you and jeff but i always say i love it because it kind of reminds me sometime on another show of the odd couple which is chris broussard and uh rob parker 
sometimes that's how y'all come across, but I like it. So how did y'all build that type of radio report? I know it's a father-son combination, and that might be one of the first, at least here in the city, as a father and son duo on the radio. How did y'all pull that up? Do y'all plan this, or is it just off the top? It's, it's as real as it gets. I mean, it's, uh, it's what our relationship is. Uh, we battle at times. I certainly have a great amount of love for Jeff. He's my only child, and uh, we went through a lot together. And uh, here we are on the other end of that. He's, he's approaching 40 years old, and uh, we thought this radio partnership, relationship, uh, would be entertaining to people. And, and a lot of people enjoy the banter. Some people don't. Some people think I'm too rough on Jeff. Uh, that's okay. It's, uh, it's a radio show. It's entertainment. And uh, that's what we do. I have to say, though, that, you know, Jeff now is on the show uh, less than he used to be. I'm taking a, a little bit of a hiatus from uh, the drive so that I can concentrate on League 42 and the season that we have coming up. So for the next uh, 10 weeks or so, it'll be a little bit different show. Uh, my plan is to return in July, on, on around July 19th. And and uh, I don't know. I don't know if Jeff will be able to do as many shows as he has been, but we'll keep the drive alive in some fashion or another. We've got uh, co-hosts like Jason Duda and Jamin Anderson and Anthony Capra. So, uh, we're 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 gonna figure out how to keep that show uh, viable. They they had me kind of nervous yesterday. I have to admit because when I tuned in, I didn't hear the regular voices. So I'm thinking it's a national syndicated show on. And then they finally said, "Call the show at eight six nine twelve four. I'm like, "Okay, whoo!" But speaking of League Forty Two, that's because I definitely want to talk about that. So you helped me lead into that. League 42, if I'm correct, you had a hand in getting that started. Who are some of the people yeah. on your staff? I, I noticed there was, if I'm correct, I believe there was Larry Dennis, which I grew up with the Dennis family, great family, great background. But what was the concept of getting League 42 started? Now, I know 42 is the number of Jackie Robinson. But what was the right. concept behind it? And, you know, and I know it's dealing with baseball. And how can we get – and I know you can ask this question honestly and truthful. How can we get more people of color involved in the game of baseball? Because we don't see a lot at the high school level, college level. And if it's going to start, it would have to start this level. So what are y'all doing to reach out to the community? Well, that was the, uh, that was the idea that I had for many, many years leading up to League 42 is that uh, we, we need to get more uh, black kids, more Hispanic kids, of the opportunity to play uh, and make it affordable, make it easily accessible. So we uh, headquartered our league at, at McAdams Park, which has so much history in the black community. Uh, that was eight years ago. We're now uh, we're now a league of around 600 kids annually. A good percentage of those are African American. A growing percentage of those are Hispanic. And uh, we are cognizant of trying to reach out to those uh, communities and to engage them and to get them interested. You know, uh, basketball and football are so prevalent in the uh, 
in the black culture with kids, and we're making inroads baseball. We we think uh, we think kids should try a variety of sports when they're young, see what they uh, enjoy, see what they're good at, and uh, so League Forty Two has been a success. We've moved moved uh, into the education realm, the social justice realm. We're doing some things in those areas. Uh, we're going to build a facility just across the street on 17th from McAdams that will house a, a computer lab for after-school tutoring and reading and math. So we're really expanding what we're trying to do, and uh, we think that uh, we think we'll become even even more uh, viable here in the next year or two. So now let me ask you this question because I know there's a lot of work going on there at McAdams. They, you know, the swimming pool. I, I noticed the basketball court had a funky look to it. Uh, but one of the things that I'm reminded of, and I know you probably got to lock elbows with the late Goose Dowdy, as well as he was as a basketball coach, he also pushed tennis. So he was kind of outside the box because you never know too many coaches of his status that would also be involved in tennis. And I think he was also trying to get more people involved, you know, outside of basketball and football. What is your recollection of Goose Dowdy and what he was trying to accomplish outside of basketball? I knew Goose well, and Goose was a tremendous athlete uh, in his day and a very, very good tennis player. So he took that passion and and uh, tried to bring it to the black community at McAdams Park. The, the tennis courts there are named after Goose. He had a very successful summer tennis program uh, that attracted a lot of kids. And uh, yeah, Goose uh, Goose was a pioneer, really, in that area. Of course, most people knew him as a very successful basketball coach at Heights. Uh, but I think Goose Goose loved the game of basketball. Uh, he was a tremendous player down at Langston University in Oklahoma. But I really think tennis was his passion. And uh, he was uh, very passionate, as I said, and enthusiastic about getting kids involved in that game. So, yeah, Goose Goose was a pioneer in that area for sure. And since we're speaking of Goose, because I'm I'm gonna ask you a question, question about a lot of as a lot of people as thirty minutes will allow us to do, but if I'm correct, Goose came after the legendary Lafayette Norwood. There was actually Anthony one coach in between them at Heights. His name was Steve Carmichael. Okay, I think he coached one year at Heights. After uh, Lafayette Norwood went to KU with Darnell Valentine, Mm -hmm. Steve Carmichael took over that program. And then the following year, uh, Goose Dowdy became the head coach. And then Goose coached for for a long time and was replaced by Joe Auer, who's been at Heights now for well over 20 years. So it's been basically three coaches, uh, Lafayette Norwood, Goose Dowdy, and Joe Auer, who have been at Heights since, uh, my goodness, the early 1970s. That that sounds like the Pittsburgh Steelers. They just don't change coaches, huh? <laughs> so no, they've had remarkable continuity at that school in basketball and a lot of success. So that's probably the reason. 
So if if UCLA or they say the Pac-12 is the conference of champions, then Heights would be known as the school of champions because it started back in the days. Lafayette Norwood they had that undefeated Heights team. What do you remember about Goose Dowdy and not Goose, Lafayette Norwood and that Wichita Heights team as we know them as Hollywood Heights? Right. I, I, I actually covered that team in 1976-77, the, the team you're talking about that was undefeated. I had just, uh, I was a 21-year-old kid at the time, uh, pretty pretty wet behind the ears, and I was covering this team of, of unbelievable athletes at Heights. You had Darnell Valentine and Calvin Alexander, Doc Holden, Antoine Carr, James Carr, uh, quite a few others, and they were uh, unbeatable. Uh, they were like nothing I'd ever seen, and Darnell Valentine was the best defensive high school player I've ever seen. Uh, that that team had one marginally close game all season long. I think they had a nine-point win over South. The rest of their wins were in double digits, and many of them 20- and 30-point wins, including beating Kansas City Wyandotte uh, by close to 40 points in the state championship game that year. So that's that's the best high school basketball team I've ever seen, and I can't imagine there's ever been a better one in the state of Kansas. Okay. Now let me ask you this question. I'm going to put you on the spot now. The Perry Ellis-led Heights team, I think they won, what, three, four state championships in a row? Perry's a four-time champion. Four-time champion. How would – Either one of those teams stack up against that undefeated Heights team. Well, Joe Iron never likes my answer to this, and and those Heights teams were fantastic. They also had an undefeated state championship team. Uh, you know, you get Perry Ellis and Evan Wessel and a lot of the, the players that were uh, at Heights during that era. Uh, those were very, very, very good teams. I don't think they would beat the seventies. 677 Heights team. Uh, that's the best team I've ever seen. And uh, with no disrespect to the Perry Ellis generation of Heights, because what they accomplished was phenomenal. But I think the, the Heights team from the 76 77 season is a once in a lifetime type of team. Absolutely. And in regards to that, state championship team that that team beat Kansas City wind up by 40. If I'm correct, because I had James Carr on my show, and he basically said that was basically payback because I think Wyandotte beat them like the year before or something like that. Larry Drew. Larry Drew, right. Beat uh, Heist the year before in the state title game. Now, let me ask you this, because this has always been intriguing to me, because in talking with James – he said that originally he was not supposed to even be at Heights. He was going to go to Cape and Mount Carmel. He said they grew up Catholic and he was going to go to Cape and Mount Carmel and they ended up moving, end up at Heights. So had the narrative not shifted and James Carr ends up at Cape and Mount Carmel and I would assume Antoine would probably end up there. How would Capon's program be perceived then? Because yeah, I never knew I never knew that about the cars going right. to Capon. That's almost unimaginable to me. 
Uh, obviously, it would have uh, established Capen as you know, Capen in those years had a very fine basketball as well, and Greg Dryling, Dryling right? American. He was a couple years younger uh, than Antoine, and I think four years younger than James. So they would not have James would not have necessarily played with Greg Dryling, but Antoine might have had a year or two with Greg Darling. Ooh, that would have been scary. That would have been good. Yeah. So, yeah, I just I just had to get to that because I didn't know if you had known that or not. So when James mentioned, I said, let me think about that and bring that up because that would be very interesting. That would have been like a pipeline from the cars to Dryling and no telling what else could have been of that Cape and Mount Carmel program. Now you've yeah. been you've been in Wichita. You've seen a whole lot of sports. Uh, as a matter of fact, what's your memories of Wichita State football? Since we don't have a program outside of Prince McJunkins, rest in peace. What's your memories of Wichita State football? Because as I look through some of the you know dialogue of Wichita State football, there's been some well-known names, but that's all it is: is the names. Who are some names you remember from Wichita State football era? Well, I started going to Wichita State football and basketball games when I was really young. Uh, I had an aunt who was a professor at Wichita State, and she would give my dad her two season tickets for both football and basketball. So uh, we were lucky there, too. You know, I gained a deep appreciation, and I was a huge Shocker fan when I was a kid. So... It was fun to go to football games, even though it wasn't uh, a great uh, program. There were moments, and they had good players, so it was fun to watch. Uh, And you mentioned Prince McJunkins and his uh, untimely death here uh, earlier this year was extremely hard uh, because uh, Prince was, you know, he, he was such a good guy as well as a fantastic football player and probably uh, the best football player at Wichita State, at least during the modern era. I think a lot of the old guys would say Linwood Sexton was the best, but Mm -hmm. Prince was certainly a tremendous football player and it was sad to lose him. And it brought back a lot of memories of Shocker football. And it's hard to fathom that now it's been 35 years, 35 years. Right since there was a football program at Wichita State. That seems uh, impossible to believe, but uh, 1986, that was the last year. I was going to Hutchinson Community College at the time, and, you know, at that time we had some Florida guys on campus They were playing football. And some of them, we happened to come to a game. And this is way after the Prince era. And... When we get back to campus, they talking about we could have beat that team and blah blah this. I mean, they would not get off my Wichita State team, but I had to let them know we've actually had some celebrity coaches on that staff a long time ago. I mean, I've seen Philip Farmer's name on there. I've seen uh, I know Bill Parcells, Jimmy Johnson, Jimmy Johnson. Uh, what's yeah. his name? Uh, he, he was with Dallas for the. No, Won championship with the New York Giants. What's his name? Bill Parcells. So, when when you see that collection of people that's actually come through Wichita State, 
And then you look in the record books, Joe Williams, 67-yard field goal. You know, whether we have a program or not, that is something in the record books that can't be taken away. The other thing in the record books that can't be taken away, Wichita State is the first school to hire an African-American as a coach, NCAA as we know then as Division One, And that speaks volumes. Willie Jeffries. You're talking about Willie Jeffries. Willie Jeffries. Who was Prince McJunkin's coach. Absolutely. And Willie kind of breathed some life into the football program during the years he was there. They didn't always win, but they had an 8-3 season. Uh, and it, it was, you know, they they beat Oklahoma State. Uh, they beat uh, Kansas. They, they did some special things in that time. Uh, they just could never get the program uh, to a level where it could sustain itself on a high level. So eventually when, when in 1986, when uh, crowds were sparse and money was being lost. And Ron Chismar was the coach. The decision was made by Lou Perkins, the athletic director, to, to end the program and Warren Armstrong, the president. And uh, like I said, here we are 35 years later. And there's no sign of life that uh, football's coming back anytime soon. Right. One of the things I remember about during the Willie Jeffries era, and as he was getting, especially during that 8-3 and three season, was the big game, Tulsa. Of course, Tulsa won the game, marched around the field in celebration. But can you tell me, trivia question, can you tell me who was coaching Tulsa at that time? You'll have to, you know what, that's not going to get into my brain. So you'll have to answer that one. I'm going to go ahead and tell you this because this is another legendary name and he ended up making his mark at Ohio State afterwards. John, John Cooper. Cooper. Yeah, I should have known that. Uh, that's, that's a sign of age, Anthony. I should have gotten that one. So – We've seen some people actually grace the sidelines, at least on the other side, or have come through Wichita State. And who would have imagined John Cooper coaching the Tulsa? And I think they went 10-1 that year. They beat us, and they got the automatic bowl bid to whatever the bowl was because had we won, we would have got a bowl game. Yeah. Just the thing, John Cooper coached on the sidelines opposite of Wichita State and ended up getting on at Ohio State. Yeah, there were there were a few times when that uh, the Stadium was was full, and it was it was fun. You know, it, it was fun. There were there were periods of excitement and optimism, but they just could never kind of they, they just could never sustain it. They could never make it permanent. Uh, they they take two steps forward and three steps back. So let me ask you this question because they went eight and three. The following year, they go three and eight. This is after the Prince McJunkins graduation. They go three and eight, but there's promise for next year's team because they got the returning quarterback, which I believe was Romy Mayfield. I don't know if you remember that name, but he I was do. he was the replacement for Prince McJunkins, and I think he had another year or so. But they fired Willie Jeffries, and they say it was because of declining attendance. But they had a promising team, but they bring in. Ron Chismar, who was an assistant at Arizona State, and he totally changes the style, and that basically killed the program. Do you think had Jeffries been given another year to right that wrong that 
the team could have probably got some sustainability? You know, that's one of those questions that uh, everybody will have an opinion on. I I don't think that there would have been a sustainability. I think Willie Jeffries was a very good football coach, and, and uh, but I think I think the time had come as it as it did for so many coaches. They they just couldn't establish a program. They would have some success, but you gotta you gotta do it on a more more uh, regular basis. So I think people were were excited when Chismar was Chismar was hired, and again another coach who uh, stepped into the situation of Wichita State and was really unable to establish a winning football program. Lots of those guys at Wichita State football through the years. Okay. Well, our time is about to grow short. Got like four minutes left and you committed to 30 minutes. And I appreciate that, which means we're going to have to do this again, but well, basically, with three, two minutes and some time left, give me a quick Mount Rushmore of basketball at Wichita State. Give me a starting five. Oh, the, the starting five. Boy, that's a you, you're gonna put me on the spot. Well, uh, let's see. The point guard would be Fred Van Vliet. I'll start there. Uh, the two guard uh, would be uh, boy. You got a lot of choices. Let's go to the center position next, okay? Okay. If you're talking about a true center, I think you'd pick uh, Robert Elmore. Okay. Uh, Dave Stallworth would be the small forward. Xavier McDaniel would be the power forward. And let's say, uh, man, the shooting guard would be Aubrey Sherrod. It okay. could be Jason Perez. It could be Ron Baker. Uh, it could be Maurice Evans. You got you got quite a few to choose from. So let's go with uh, let's go with uh, uh, Aubrey Sherrod. Okay, at the shooting guard. Although Ron Baker would be an excellent choice as well. Okay. Well, once again, and and, and I didn't even include Clea Littleton. Right. So you you could have him too. Although I'd view him. It's hard to view him as a shooting guard with the style of basketball that they played during his era. He was more of a big man, mm-hmm. uh, even at six four. So it's it's a that's a tough one, but for sure, Stallworth X and Fred Van Vliet have to be in that lineup. The other positions, the center position and the shooting guard position, are a little more difficult to uh, to, to pinpoint. Well, once again. Bob Lutz is my passenger on the A-Train Sports Talk. I want to thank you for your time. And we will definitely have to do this again. I know I put you on the spot in that last minute or so. So next (laughs) time we come back on, we're going to do an all-decade team. Team from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Then that way we won't be putting you on the spot. But once again, I want to thank you for joining me on my podcast. We'll have to do this again. And good luck with League 42. And is there a number people can call you at so they can get in contact with would you put I'll, uh, I'll give out an email address. It's league42wichita at gmail.com. League42wichita at gmail.com. And, Anthony, you're a valued uh, voice of sports in this community. And, 
Uh, we appreciate all the times you call our show and hope that continues. All right. Once again, I do thank you. And this is Bob Lutz wrapping up this segment. I'll be back with more after this. Want to enhance your workout? Try the workout bands everyone is talking about. Three different resistance levels. Light, medium, and heavy. Only at www.kakeybums.com That's www.c-a-k-e-y-b-u-m-s.com www.kakeybums.com To enhance your workout, with the resistance bands that everyone is talking about. Hey, what's happening? It's Rick Thomas with Running the Table, and you already know you are on board the A-Train. Hang on for the ride. Welcome back to my next segment. And first of all, I want to say thanks once again to the passengers I had on board, the one and only Bob Lutz, known here locally, but like I say, I believe in all points beyond locally for what he's done in the city of Wichita for Lord knows how long. I remember waking up, getting the sports page and reading what he had to say, and now I listen to him on radio, and I've been listening to him for a long time. You know, j- just to set the record straight, you know, I always want to work in radio, which I do, or knock on wood. Uh, but it was because of him and Bruce Hurdle I wanted to get involved in radio, and I ended up working at a radio station as a board operator or engineer producer. So that's what one that's what got me started to working in radio as we know today. Uh, I'm kind of at a loss because I don't know if I want to continue it. I mean, I want to, but I have other things going on which would take my time away. But it was because of Bob and Bruce that I ended up getting me a job in radio because they made me want to do that. So once again, Bob, thank you for being on this podcast and you will definitely be back again. Now the sound bite you just heard was from one of the plaintiffs 
However, two judges have ruled that most of the plaintiffs suing Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson must identify themselves. Not one judge, but two judges. The rulings from two hearings Friday covered 13 of the 22 lawsuits filed against Watson alleging sexual assault and inappropriate conduct, while the attorneys also agreed to release a 14th name later in the day. Prior to Friday, only two women had been publicly identified during the second hearing. During the second hearing held in the 113th District Court, plaintiff's attorney, Tom Tony Busby, and Watson's attorney, Rusty Harden, agreed that nine of the 12 women would publicly reveal their names by Wednesday after they told Busby they would do so voluntarily. Regarding the other three women, Judge Rabia Sultan Collier granted Harden's emergency motion requiring the release of their names. Harden said in a news conference that Busby also agreed to amend a lawsuit that had been set for an emergency hearing at 5 p.m. Eastern Friday to include the plaintiff's name. Court records show Harden was, has filed motion asking that the remaining women who have not revealed their name also make their identities public. During Friday's first hearing in the 270th District Court, Harden had accused Busby of using the women's enormity to kill the reputation of our client. Busby argued that allowing enormity is common in cases dealing with allegations of sexual assault. Busby said Ashley Solis, whose voice you heard, who publicly identified herself earlier this week, had received death threats. And during the second hearing, he shared an example of threatening messages sent to Solis. Harden excused Busby of using news conferences and social media to make coordinated attacks against Watson that the quarterback's legal team could not fight because they don't know the women's identities. Harden says he sympathizes with the online attacks the women have faced, but that Watson has also suffered consequences as he has been repeatedly called a rapist on social media. Busby asked during the first hearing that the women's names be released to Harden and his legal team, but that they should not make her identity public. Judge Deidre Davis disagreed, saying Busby's legal team might be getting an unfair advantage in the case because of his use of media coverage. We need a balance. A balance of interest is required for both parties, Davis said. After the hearings, Busby released a statement saying the other women suing Watson have been emboldened by Solis going public with her experience. They are ready to be identified, Busby said. In lawsuits, sometimes we push hard for something that may turn out not to be helpful. As I said in court, Be careful for what you ask. Identifying these women at this point adds even more credibility to the allegations being made, and I am proud to stand with these brave and courageous women. Busby and Harden also agreed that the 22 lawsuits could be consolidated in the 113th District Court for any pretrial matters. Harden had filed the emergency motion Thursday saying Mr. Busby's use of anonymous lawsuits violates Texas law and the basic concept of fairness. 
while I understand that enormity often is used as a shield for victims, Mr. Busby is using it as a sword, Harden said in a statement. While shielding his clients from public scrutiny, Mr. Busby continues to use their anonymous allegations to destroy Mr. Watson. This is simply not right, and we look forward to resolving these matters in court. In response to Harden's motion, Busby's law firm wrote that the effort was a blatantly transparent attempt to further traumatize, humiliate, and embarrass brave women who have come forward to seek justice for their assaults, sexual assault, and harassment at the hands of a serial predator. The plaintiff's response included examples of profane and threatening messages that Solace had received this week. Outing victims of sexual assault and assault and harassment can slow the healing process and force them to discontinue pursuing their cases, the law firm wrote. Dallas-based attorney Michelle Simpson, Michelle Simpson, true jail, to jail, told ESPN's John Barr on Friday that Texas law leaves the decision of identifying adults making sexual assaults accusations to the discretion of the courts. The way I explain it to my clients is that there's not a 100% chance that their name won't appear in a public file, Simpson said. I tell them I'm going to fight for it to remain under pseudonym. Under pseudonym, but I want my clients to know that it's a possibility. Excuse the notifications. I'm trying to get these to stop right now so I can get back into this. Thank you for your patience. In a statement Tuesday, NFL spokesperson Brian McCarthy called the allegations against Watson deeply disturbing, noting we take these issues very seriously. McCarthy said the league launched an investigation under its personal conduct policy last month after the first allegations and that the NFL is continuing to closely monitor all developments in the matter. Watson has denied the allegations in the lawsuit. In another related story, Rusty Harden, Deshaun Watson never engaged in acts with plaintiffs that weren't mutually desired. Deshaun Watson's lawyer, Rusty Harden, acknowledged during a Friday news conference that there were some consensual encounters between the Houston Texans quarterback and some of the 22 women who have filed lawsuits against him. But he said at no point did Watson engage in any acts that were not mutually desired. Were there sometimes consensual encounters? Yes, Harden said. When asked to clarify his comments about Watson taking part in sex acts with some of the women who have filed lawsuits against him alleging inappropriate behavior and sexual assaults, Harden replied, in some of these messages, there's going to be no question. 
We never run from it. Watson has publicly denied any wrongdoing, and Harden has emphasized since he began representing the quarterback last month that he believes any allegations that Deshaun forced a woman to commit a sexual act is completely false. I'm not going to go into what it is or the nature or the numbers or with whom Harden said regarding any consensual encounters between Watson and some of the plaintiffs. But I think you can rightfully assume that the question always that we have, the question always that we have always been emphasizing, never at any time under any circumstances did this young man ever engage in anything that was not mutually desired by the other party. Earlier Friday, two judges ruled that most of the players suing Watson must identify themselves. The rulings from two hearings covered 13 of 22 lawsuits filed against Watson, while the attorneys also agreed to release a 14th name later in the day. Court records show Harden has filed motions asking that the remaining women who have not revealed their names also make their identities public. Prior to Friday, only two women have been publicly identified. During Friday's first hearing in the 270th, 70th District Court, Harden had accused the plaintiff's lawyer, Tony Busby, of using the women's enormity to kill the reputation of our client. Busby argued that allowing enormity is common in cases dealing with allegations of sexual assault. Busby and Ashley Solis, who publicly identified herself earlier this week, had received death threats, and during the second hearing, he shared an example of a threatening message sent to Solis. After the hearings, Busby released a statement saying the other women suing Watson have been emboldened by Solis' going public with her experience. They are ready to be identified, Busby said. In lawsuits, sometimes we push hard for something that may turn out not to be helpful. As I said in court, be careful what you ask for. Identifying these women at this point adds even more credibility to the allegations being made, and I am proud to stand with these brave and courageous women. Busby and Harden also agreed that the 22 lawsuits also be consolidated in the 113th District Court for any pretrial matters. In a statement Tuesday, NFL spokesperson Brian McCarthy called the allegations against Watson deeply disturbing, noting we take these allegations very seriously. So there you have the Deshaun Watson scandal that is being played out before the public eye. Uh, do I have a comment on this? Or maybe the question is, should I comment on this? I'm going to say this and I speak for the masses. All we have to go on is what's being said. Did he do it? We don't know. Are they telling the truth? We don't know. Are they lying? We don't know. Why come we don't know? It's plain and simple. We were not there. I've read some comments, and like I said, I have read some comments, so don't take these comments as mine, but it's comments that make you think, and I've thought of, and I have actually thought this, but some of the comments I even read this morning as you hear about the sponsors pulling out from endorsing them, 
one of the comments I read was how ironic that he was adamant about wanting to get out of Houston. And all of a sudden these allegations come up. But now I want to put a different spin on it. Let's go back in time. Wilt Chamberlain bragged about how many hundreds of women he had been with. I don't recall none of them making any claims of sexual assault. Of course, Wilt Chamberlain was not making Deshaun Watson type money either. Maybe Wilt Chamberlain was able to pay off. Who knows? This is one of those situations. Nobody was there. All we have is the fact that Will Chamberlain was proud of the fact of how many women he was with. Tiger Woods was well known and well documented. Basically, he was just he was cheating on his wife with other mistresses. And now we have Deshaun Watson. Or I've even heard some go this far. Some have said this looks like another Bill Cosby situation. And we know where that landed Bill Cosby. At the end of the day, you hope none of this actually happened. You hope none of this is true. But let's say Deshaun Watson is able to get his name cleared. He may get his name cleared, but his reputation has taken a hit, whether it's true or not. What should be done to the women if it comes to find out that these stories were fabricated? Everybody wants to talk about the Deshaun Watson punishment and what he should get if found to be true. But if found not to be true, what should be the punishment of the accusers? Let me tell you what shouldn't be done. Acts of violence against them shouldn't be done. Shame on them if they're lying and there need to be consequences. I'll go as far as say it like this. The one thing I never got in trouble for at home was for telling the truth. If I got in trouble for anything, it was because I did something wrong and I tried to lie about it. So if it's found out that these stories are fabricated, what should their consequences be? You destroy a man's reputation. You slander a man's name. As a matter of fact, they have something for, it's called defamation of character. If you defame someone's character, there should be some type of punishment to go with it. Because there is no way Deshaun Watson, even if it's found out that this is not true, will be able to play the game that he loves peacefully without suffering some type of backlash. Because there's going to always be that small percentile of people. Hear me out. There's going to always be that small amount of people that's going to say, well, he shouldn't have been with them in the first place. 
Why don't he just get one masseuse? That would probably make sense. But there's going to always be a percentage. If he wouldn't have been with X amount of those masseuses, this one that came up. There's going to be that small percentile of people say you make your bed hard, you roll over and lay in it. There's going to be that small percentile of people that's going to say he got what he deserved. So whether he comes out clean in this or not, he will never be totally clean because of perception. And when this is the perception that's painted of you, as much as you want to say that we live in a forgiving country, there will be some that will never forgive. And sadly, some that will never forget. And I hate to say it, if this is found out to be some false allegations, chances are nothing happens to the ones that accused them. I'd like to know what your thoughts are. Please feel free to weigh in. There is a link when you see this podcast. There is a link where you can leave a message. I'll be glad to hear your messages. As a matter of fact, if you have a good enough message, I might even air it on my next episode. But keep in mind, the important part is I was not there, and neither were y'all. All we have is his word, their word. Attorney's word, attorney word versus attorney word. I just think that both judges, however, did the right thing by saying, you must identify yourself. Because I think their background needs to be checked as well, too. I think the accusers, I think they should have character witnesses, character references. People who can speak of their reputation, of their character, because right now their character and their reputation is not taking a hit. So I would love to hear what you have to say on this Deshaun Watson situation and his accusers. Do you think the judges did the right thing by saying that they must come forth with their identity? Because it's hard to fight a fight and you don't know who you're fighting against. This is the A-Trade Sports Talk podcast. Your conductor, Anthony Smith. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, I will have some more to look at. So stay tuned after this word from my sponsor. Hey, what's happening? It's Rick Thomas with Running the Table, and you already know you are on board the A-Train. Hang on for the ride. Welcome back to my next segment, and I have a little something for you. Just think about it. There's a franchise that has been playing for 
what, at least 53 years? That's over 8,000 and something games. We're talking Major League Baseball. I have never talked baseball on my podcast, but I'm doing it today. Because in this franchise, storied history, and some great names have come through it. They have never had someone in their uniform pitch a no-hitter until last night. Can you believe that? San Diego Padres right-hander Joe Musgrove didn't sleep well on Thursday night. When he woke up Friday morning, his body felt tight. As he navigated through his typical pre-start routine later in the afternoon, he was noticeably off. Then the game began, and Musgrove drank about a dozen balls of water, which made him feel as if he would explode by around the fourth inning. But he couldn't do anything about it. He had yet to allow any hits. That was one thing I didn't want to break, the superstition of it, Musgrove said. I didn't want to have to go use the bathroom in the middle of a start. Musgrove somehow held it in and held off the Texas Rangers in the process. Padres pitcher, a local product who grew up rooting for the team and wears number 44 to honor Cy Young Award winner Jake Peavy, toiled the first no-hitter in franchise history during a 3-0 victory at Globe Life Field in Arlington, Texas. The Padres entered Friday as the only team in the majors to never record a no-hitter, but Musgrove snapped the streak at 8,206 regular season games by allowing only one base runner on a hit-by-pitch in the fourth and striking out 10 batters over nine innings. I think a no-hitter is special regardless of where you're playing, Musgrove said, but it almost seems as if this was meant to be. Musgrove, 28, retired the first 11 Rangers hitters in order, then plunked Joe Gallo and retired the next 16. He began the bottom of the ninth with 103 pitches, a concerning pitch count giving the heightened caution managers are expressing with their pitches coming off a shortened season. But Musgrove was well bent on continuing to pitch. I was just so locked in, he added. I had no intentions of coming out of that game. Nine pitches later, he made history. David Dahl lined out to second baseman Jake Cronworth. Leota Travers hit a tapper back to the mound, and Isaiah Kenner Falifa produced a two-hopper to Hasin Kim, 
who is temporarily replacing the injured Fernando Tatis Jr. at shortstop. Padres catcher Victor Caratini, who caught the most recent no-hitter when Alec Mills did it for the Chicago Cubs on September 13, 2020, sprinted to the mound for an emphatic hug before the rest of the team formed a dog pile. Musgrove grew up in El Cajon, California, roughly 15 miles from San Diego. It feels so incredible, said Musgrove, who had never thrown a no-hitter at any level. The city of San Diego has shown me so much love even before I came to the Padres. Just a San Diego kid that made it to the big leagues. So it feels even better to do it in a Padres uniform and selfishly be able to do it for my city and know that the kid from Gross Mount High threw the first no-hitter. Musgrove threw 77 of his career-high 112 pitches for strikes and relied mostly on breaking balls. He knew he hadn't given up any hits by the time he finished the sixth inning, but he thought his pitch count was too high for him to have any chances of finishing the game. When he noticed it was only a 67, he realized he had a shot. From that point on, Musgrove, ditched his fastball entirely. He relied heavily on his curveball and slider, the latter of which was especially effective, and sprinkling in the occasional cutter to generate quick outs. Musgrove's back still felt tight during his pregame warm-up in the bullpen, and he felt as if he was pulling off pitches in the early innings. Two-thirds of the way through the game, his delivery still felt inconsistent, prompting a slight adjustment. I was just kind of willing my way through those at-bats, Musgrove said. A lot of trust in Vic, and then just will. Padres manager Jace Tingler let Musgrove go the distance because he was so efficient. And knowing what it would mean to have a hometown player in the franchise's no-hitter drought in his 53rd season. I think in a way that makes it, if it can be any sweeter, any more special for him to do it growing up in San Diego and this being his team, it's about the perfect story written, Tingler said. Hall of Fame closer Trevor Hoffman, who pitched more than 15 years for the franchise, tweeted his congratulations. Hometown kid getting it done. Congrats, Joe. Musgrove was a relatively unheralded acquisition from the Pittsburgh Pirates over the offseason. But that was only because the Padres also added Hugh Darvish and Blake Snell to the rotation. Musgrove, acquired in a three-team, seven-player trade on January 19th, brought similar promise to the Padres' hopes of dethroning the Los Angeles Dodgers in the National League West. He dealt with ankle and tricep injuries last season, but he posted a 2.16 ERA with 38 strikeouts and five walks in 25 innings over his last five starts. Two starts into his Padres career, Musgrove has pitched 15 scoreless innings, striking out 18 batters while scattering just three hits and issuing zero walks. He is the first pitcher to throw a no-hitter in his first or second start with a team since Clay Buchholz did so in his second start for the Boston Red Sox on September 1st, 2007 according to Elias Sports Bureau research. Musgrove is the eighth pitcher in the modern era to do it. 
Friday marked his first time completing nine innings in the major league, which was illustrated by one of his signature superstitions. Musgrove lines up nine pieces of gum on his towel before each start. He chews one of them each. He chews one of them each half inning to help keep his mind occupied, then spits it out onto the towel and grabs the other. Okay. I try not to look at the scoreboard as much as I can, so I kind of mark my innings by the little pile of bubble gum that I spit out, Musgrove said. Tonight's the first night that I got to chew all nine pieces. So congrats to Musgrove on his accomplishment and breaking that plus 8,000 game streak where there were no no hitters 53 years later. 53 years later. And Joe Musgrove has the San Diego Padres first ever franchise history no hitter that's been an amazing feat what I want to do now is look at I'm going to take a look at the top 10 Major League Baseball power rankings So Major League Baseball Power Rankings Week 1, who are the biggest risers and fallers in the first week of the season? How much can really change in one week of a 162-game Major League Baseball season? I still think 162 games is still too many. I think they can reduce that to 125 for starts. Exactly one week since the excitement of opening day had fans of, well, almost every MLB team thinking positive thoughts about the possibilities to come in 2021. First regular season rankings of the young season offer something of a reality check for some and reason for hope that this could be the year for others. I'm only looking at the top 10. I'm not going to go through the whole scenario. I'm just going to look at 10 because I have so much more to get to. So this might be an extended podcast, but hopefully it will be informative and hopefully you will enjoy So is your favorite team off to a fast start that might or might not last, or are you rooting for your squad to pick it up after faltering out of the gate? Well, number one, with a record of five and two, and their previous ranking was one, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Corey Seager remains red hot, and Mookie Betts, Max Muncy, Justin Turner, and Will Smith, not the rapper, not the movie star, are already swinging it well. But the big difference as far so far has been Gavin Lux, who looks a lot more comfortable both defensively and offensively. He's 23 profiles as a star and he might theoretically end up becoming just as big of an addition as Trevor Bauer. Number two with a three and three record in their previous ranking, number two, 
New York Yankees, the pitching staff aired the season as a bigger question mark than the offense, but the bullpen especially showed up in the opening series with Blue Jays. The Bronx Bombers pen allowed his one run in 15 and two-thirds inning against Toronto. Number three, San Diego Padres, the record of four and three. Padre fans were able to excel late Tuesday when general manager A.J. Preller reported that his shortstop, Fernando Tatis Jr., received relatively positive MRI results on his tender left shoulder and is hopeful of returning to the lineup soon after his I.O. stint is up. But that shoulder, which has intermittently popped in and out of place for the entirety of Tatis' professional career, will be worth monitoring throughout the summer. Another subluxation could lead to surgery, prompting extended playing time for Hae-Sung Kim, who has struggled to adapt to Major League velocity so far in his debut season. Number four with a 4-2 and two record, the Minnesota Twins. Their actual previous ranking was number six. They've come up a little bit. So far, so good. The Twins have averaged more than six runs per game. The best thing about this is that through Tuesday, only 39% of their runs had come via the long ball, down 49% last season and 51% the season before. With Byron Buxton breaking out, breaking out in contact hitters, Luis Arias, Williams, Ostadilio, and Andrelton Simmons all off the fast starts. This is a more balanced Twins attack. Oh, and Nelson Cruz just doesn't age. This should not be possible, but his looks, but his bats looks as quick as ever. Upper 90s, up in the zone. No problem. Cruz has a 3.500 OPS and those so far. He's almost 41 years old. And the team I like to give my other host sometimes, old Smokey, he has an infatuation about the Houston Asterix. I mean the Houston Astros. There are some that say they still should have been stripped of that title that they won because they cheated the game. But anyway, coming in number five, the Houston Astros, and they've climbed. Their previous ranking was number nine. With a 5-1 and one record, the Astros lineup goes seven deep with elite hitters and has been rolling so far. Though we have to sort out how much of that has been because of Houston and how much of it has been absolute stupor, the stumbling Oakland A's have been in to start the season. Dusty Baker has really spread out the work with his pitching staff thus far while letting Zach Grinke work deep and give most of the bullpen a respite on his start day. It's been a great opening road trip for the Astros against two division opponents whose fans seem thrilled to welcome them to town. Yeah, how about the blow-up trash cans throwing them out into the outfield? Or how about when Altuve came to bat, they threw a real trash can out into the outfield. Coming in at number six with a one and two record. Previous ranking was number five. 
the New York Metropolitans. In typical Mets fashion, they blew another Jacob DeGrom lead in their first game, and the bullpen was also shaky in their second game. So Mets fans are already thinking dark thoughts. DeGrom was terrific, however, and came out throwing 24 consecutive fastballs. The Mets have now recorded 30 blown saves in DeGrom's career, tied for the most among starting pitchers since he joined the league. Here's another angle. DeGrom has a 2.24 career ERA in his 63 no decisions. Number seven, they are, they are sliding because their previous ranking was number four with a 2-4 record, the Atlanta Braves. They scored just eight runs in losing their first four games as the offense, second best in the major league. Last season behind the Dodgers at 5.8 runs per game, got up to a slow start before breaking out against the Nats. On Wednesday, the Atlanta offense was an obvious was an obvious regression candidate given the big seasons from Marcel Ozuna, 1.067 OPS, and Travis Diarnod, 0.919 OPS in 2020, and even Freddie Freeman will be hard pressed to match his 2020 numbers. Number eight. And holding steady at number eight, the two and four record, the Tampa Bay Rays. I'm still trying to figure out why come they went to Tampa Bay Rays when they used to be the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Wonder if it was for religious persons, for religious reasons. You know, everything gets changed for a reason. But anyway, the Tampa Bay Rays. Tyler Glass now has looked every bit like an ace at the top of the rotation in his first two starts, 15 strikeouts in 12 innings and a 0.75 ERA. Wow. With the losses of Blake Snell and Charlie Morton, the question of whether this team can repeat its American League pennant run likely will center on the success of the back end of its rotation. Number nine, the Toronto Blue Jays. Previous ranking, number 10, they're sliding upwards. The Blue Jays are this year's version of the 2020 White Sox, a young team with an immense amount of potential that could surprise some folks by making a strong run at the playoffs. Taking two of three games against the Yankees during the first series of the season certainly set a strong tone. And number 10, up from number 15 with a 4-2 and two record, the Los Angeles Angels. And this is the reason to watch them. Shoai Atoni, I hope I said that right, looked like he might finally become a breakout two-way player this season, and that could change everything for the Angels. They possess a solid lineup and a sound defense, a collection of starters who can absorb innings, and an intriguing bullpen given the emergence of 22-year-old right-hander Chris Rodriguez. If Otani can remain healthy enough to provide, say, 140 innings as a starter in 450 plate appearances in front of Mike Trout, the Angels might have a shot at this division. So there you have that top 10. Like, I could go through the whole league, but I'm just going to do the 
top 10. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to take another break. And when I come back, I'm going to wrap things up. So stay tuned to the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. This is your conductor, Anthony Smith. Anthony Smith here with A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor. Just want to let you know that this podcast is listener-supported. That's right, driven by you, the listener, who wants to support. So click on that support button down there. You have three options, $0.99 cents a month, $4.99 a month, or $9.99 a month. We'll get your ad rent on this podcast. So click the support button. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Once again, Anthony Smith with the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Want to enhance your workout? Try the workout bands everyone is talking about. Three different resistance levels. Light, medium, and heavy. Only at www.cakeybums.com That's www.c-a-k-e-y-b-u-m-s.com www.cakeybums.com To enhance your workout, with the resistance bands that everyone is talking about. Hey, what's happening? It's Rick Thomas with Running the Table, and you already know you are on board the A-Train. Hang on for the ride. Welcome back to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. It's the train that's building up steam, picking up passengers. Oh, and guess what, y'all? I found somebody. He's been MIA. A-W-O-L. I can do him like that. His name is Smokey. He's been going through some things. How's the family doing, bro? No, we're hanging in there. Uh, hanging in there. I mean, it wasn't... Uh, you know, the easiest time to go to go home for the first time in like 30 years to go to a funeral. Uh, but, you know, we're hanging in there for the most part. Um, so, you know, it's a blessing that we're still here. Uh, yeah. So we just take it day by day. And, and then, then on the way back from the funeral, I end up getting COVID. So this is day seven, day eight. I feel actually pretty, pretty well. I know I'm pretty, I sound well. So, but early this week, I was out of it. But now I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm on the, one up, so well, you know. see, see, y'all, y'all gonna have to keep me posted on this stuff, especially when they talk about COVID-related issues. Cause see, I'm already leery. See, I haven't, I haven't had a flu shot since Lord knows I can remember, and I got a pretty mm-hmm. good, I got a pretty good memory. Mm-hmm. And now I'm hearing people that I know personally that is taking the Moderna and Pfizer shot, and you know, with little to no effects at all. And I'm I'm just one of those ones. I'm not just literally to go let somebody stick a needle in. I didn't like taking insulin. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah, that involves taking a needle, right? So right. And you know, every time my doctor asked me about taking a flu shot, I just tell her, no, I'm I'm fine. You know, I, I don't get 
knock on wood i don't get sick often okay and when i do it's like every other year every two years like by the grace of god i made it through uh this season with no illnesses so i'm like why should i go get checked if i'm not feeling sick and then you know my by me being diabetic and having congestive heart failures you know i would fall under the line of you know some of the symptoms i have would say oh maybe that's COVID related so i you know i don't want to give them no false positive so <laughs> but i'm glad you, I'm well, you gl- well since you do have those pre-existing conditions you know how to get that vaccine because you do not want COVID. trust me <laughs> get that for everybody for even for yourself please I, I'll, I'll consider it. I mean, it's something I'm praying over. I'm, you know. I mean, let's I not consider it. We're going to have to do it because, trust me, you do not want it. Like, if you got those, you do not want it. I'm barely healthy, and I feel like I was on, like, when I tell you I had no energy, I had no energy from Monday to Thursday. Nothing. <laughs> I had nothing in me to do anything. Like, it took out everything from me. So, I honestly would get like get it like it's not just please save everybody the hassle just get to get the vaccine because i was i was going to get it this tuesday this past tuesday but i got sick that i got tested positive the friday before so of course that wiped it out so but uh i'll be getting mine and you will get yours too so all right ladies and gentlemen those of you that are listening to this podcast that's a ps a a a public service announcement coming from Smokey. please Everybody get the vaccine. Anyway, we're glad to have you back, though. <laughs> we, we're gonna get off that. We're gonna get off that subject for right now. <laughs> and y'all, listen, y'all, y'all keep me in prayer. I, I, I uh, right. hey, you're right. I'm like I say, I, I, I believe in praying on this situation. I mean, I hear you saying do it. You, you kind of in Nike mode. I believe in praying. I'm so you saying just do it. I'm gonna say just pray. Okay. Keep me in your yeah, prayer. We can we can just pray and we can just do it too. We can pray that when we're gonna get the vaccine, that everything is gonna be all right, and then we're gonna be okay. And, and see, you, let me let me do my little let me do my little sermon effort right now. You know, because I've been one of those ones. You know, I was doing Instacart. I, I do DoorDash, and you know, mm-hmm. you know, I I I adhere to the mask mandates. I pretty much stay to myself. You know, I don't do anything to try to get sick. But when people ask me, how do I? managed to get through this stuff you know going to these stores and doing instacart shopping and being around people how do i do it i'll tell you it's real simple 23rd psalms where it says i will fear no evil and i and i don't just say that to sound good but i say that because i have a strong belief in that and i believe that's what has kept me thus far but we're gonna get into some sports talk because we'll we'll fool around turn this podcast to something altogether different but one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to look at something that I normally that I haven't even done. A co-worker of mine, he it brought to my attention that one of the high school teams in the area here wasn't even ranked number one in the state of Kansas. However, looking at ESPN's high school boys top 25, let's go down through this list. Montverde Academy, which is in Florida, ranked number one with a 25 and all record. Number two, Dorman from Roebuck, South Carolina. Roebuck, South Carolina, with a 31 record. Number three, Wasatch Academy, Mount Pleasant, Utah, 27 to 2. 
Number four, La Lumere from Laporte, Indiana, with a 23-3 record. And I believe these are all season-ending records. Number five, you ready for this one? Sunrise Christian. Anyone has heard of that? Mm-hmm. Bel Air, Kansas. Miss will say Wichita is on the outskirts. I'm like a hop, skip, and a jump away from that campus. Sunrise Christian, number five, Bel Air, Kansas, 22 and three record. They were the runner up in the national tournament just last week, I do believe. Here's another perennial name. Number six, DeMatha Catholic from Hyattsville, Maryland, 30 and three record. That's down the corner for me. Well, then you know some about them then. Hey, now, now, now we can poke fun. Hey, my school is ranked higher than your school. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another traditional name right here that's always in the rankings. Oak Hill Academy from Mouth of Wilson, Virginia, 37-3. Number eight, Long Island Lutheran, Brookville, New York, 22-3. Number nine, Prolific Prep from Napa, California, 26-3. Number 10, Eden Prairie. That's right outside of Minneapolis. Eden Prairie, Minnesota, 28-0. And here's the team that I believe Sunrise had lost to in the tournament. It was IMG Academy from Bradenton, Florida at 19-6. Number 12. Boy, they need to come up with something on these names. Scotlandville. I'm going to spell that for you. S-C-O-T-L-A-N-D-V-I-L-L-E. Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 33-3 record. At 12. Number 13, Grayson from Loganville, Georgia, with a 30-2 record. Coming in at number 13, a lucky, unlucky 13. Number 14, Mena. Ha Academy, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 24 and 3. in number 15, Sierra Canyon, Chatsworth, California, 29 and 4. Number 16, Camden, Camden, New Jersey, 28 and 1. Number 17, St. Francis Academy, Baltimore, Maryland, 38 and 4. Number 18, Lancaster, or Lancaster, however you want to pronounce it. I'm pretty sure in Texas they pronounce it Lancaster. It's Lancaster. Lancaster, Texas. You know about that. 36 and 1. Coming in number 19, Hamilton Heights from Chattanooga, Tennessee, 28 and 3. Number 20, St. Benedict's Prep from Newark, New Jersey, 30 and 4. Number 21, a school from Las Vegas, Nevada, Bishop Gorman, 29 and 3. Number 22, Polly. From Baltimore, Maryland, 24 and 2. Number 23, North Mecklenburg out of Huntsville, North Carolina, 30 and 1. Number 24, I believe this is Paul 5 from Fairfax, Virginia, 27 and 8. And coming in at number 25 from Bloomington South. In Bloomington, Indiana, with a 26 and 0 record, would be Bloomington South at 25. Dropped out. They were number 24 last week. West Oaks Academy out of Orlando, Florida, at 25 and 6. And something tells me that this probably isn't the final 
rankings. I'm pretty sure that might come up next week because based on the highlights I see, and Sunrise was in the finals, I do believe. Some tell me this is not the final rankings, but you seem like you knew some of these schools and probably got some insight on some of these schools. Well, I mean, I know a couple of them, but one of them that stuck out was Camden, uh, New Jersey. Well, just because that I knew, at least last year, one of the players on my favorite basketball team, the Mavericks, Jalen Brunson, his father, Rick Brunson, used to coach Camden, but he resigned after going 29-1 last year from at Camden. So that's interesting. Um, you know, Lancaster, that's a – in Texas, that's a powerhouse basketball, I mean, a powerhouse football team. I mean, I saw his basketball as well. As well as, you know, he said a couple of them, like, uh, let's see, he said IMG, IMG, of course, that's like a big school for those in Florida, man, that, you know, anybody who has kind of money anywhere, they're going to go there to play sports, football, basketball, whatever. I think that was really about in the Mantha here in the Maryland area. Everybody who plays basketball well, they go to the Mantha. Like, because you got Markel, Markel Folks went yeah. to the Mantha. Um, and shoot, every man, anybody that you can name, Kate, Katie got some affiliation with the Mantha. So it's like every, you know, in Maryland, people know the Mantha. So, yeah, those, those are basically renowned names. Those are. Those names are kind of like, in college terms, some of those schools are just brand names. If mm-hmm. th- those those schools, th- you do not even have to recruit. As they call them blue bloods in college. Right. right? Th- those are like the blue bloods of high school on right. the national level. Mm-hmm. So when you hear the, the Mathers and the IMGs and uh, mm-hmm. even the Sunrises, because mm-hmm. on any given – you know, I'm pretty sure once all a lot of these restrictions lift, you'll see a lot of these coaches at some of these schools. I mean, a lot of coaches come basically. Let's just say oh, even they come through. Even they come through Bishop Wichita Foreman too. Right. You know, they're a football powerhouse, but basketball. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know that. You know, so. But there is so much going on. I mean, we heard about Sean Miller finally getting fired at Arizona. Mm. But the one thing, and I'm which going I think to, fine, but okay. I'm. Would you say what now? I don't think they should have. I mean, if they're going to fire him, they should have did it when those allegations first happened. To be honest, and like, he was what a couple years later, and I mean, I would have just kept him. He was a good coach, you know. Right, but you know, this past week we celebrated and crowned a champion. If I'm a correct, new champion. Mm-hmm. so. What I'm going to do, I am going to, I think this is the first time you actually Everyone loves to get to actually hear me do this, play audio. I'm going to actually play some audio, and this is the first time you're going to actually get to hear me do this. And I think it's kind of neat that I get to do this and have a co-host over here. <laughs> so we're going to play this audio right now from... Baylor Gonzaga. Well, technical difficulties. Here we go. We will fix that right now. There we go. Now, 
Let's back up and play. Three fixtures tonight. Gonzaga fakes it off against Baylor. Jalen Suggs was riding the bench early at two fouls in the first three minutes and four seconds. And Baylor took advantage with Suggs on the bench. Baylor started the game going five for five from deep. Also using the transition points, second half, second chances to pull ahead. See, Baylor led by as many as 19 in the first half. That was the largest deficit Gonzaga would face all season. Suggs would come back. The drive makes the lay-in, would make the free throws a 10-point game at the half. Early in the second, Baylor leading. Jared Butler, the long three, finish with 22, lead up to 14. Just over 13 minutes left in the game. Corey Kispert blocked. Baylor pushes. Jared Butler, open Adam Flagler, who sinks the three. You kept waiting for the Gonzaga run, and we keep on waiting. It never came. Just over four minutes left. Baylor still up 17. Davion Mitchell had a nice game. In the layup there, Suggs and the Zags were never a threat. Scott Drew coaches Baylor to their first ever national championship game. And the championship is theirs. His father, Homer, and brother Bryce there to celebrate as well. And the Baylor campus goes wild. (laughs) Good to see people happy and smiling. 86-70 is your final. So what is so significant about playing that highlight? Well, the significance of it is plain and simple. And I get to roast people on my podcast with reason. According to some experts, and I do have some experts that join me on my podcast, Gonzaga is supposed to be hosting the national championship trophy. And he's still waiting for the run to take place. He's going to have to wait till next year for that run to take place. So uh, last message I had gotten prior to any after that was Gonzaga national champions, pretty much. Smokey, would you like to elaborate on that? <laughs> <laughs> Only thing I'm gonna elaborate on was Gonzaga got they had excuse me they got thoroughly handled uh, during that game. Uh, so that was that was this Monday. I was dealing with my sickness, but I still stayed up to watch this. And all I can think of is like even just looking at how Baylor when Baylor men were built compared to the Gonzaga people. I was like, oh man, I don't know if they the Gonzaga's ready and. They just got manhandled, man. Like, just from Vital, from Baylor, just like it, it, it was just too much. Like, I don't even like they would, the way they play defense itself is like suffocating, you know. And Gonzaga couldn't handle it. And my man Jalen Suggs, um, if I was him, I would not come out. I would stay uh, for sure. Well. According to their recruiting class, they have a number one prospect coming in next year. Uh, I don't know if he's supposed to be the replacement for – no, he's a big kid, but I'm, I am I think it's them. But they're talking about this kid's like seven foot tall but got handled like a guard and, I mean, all the bells and whistles. But, you know, in, in saying that, though, I'm 53 years old. You're how old? 
29. And I'm going to throw a name out at you. No longer will we be seeing the White Howard type centers. No. Well, we better not be seeing Drew Timmy type centers neither because he's trash. And in saying that, you know, I grew up when basketball was more traditional. You had your two guards, your two forwards, you had your center. And a lot of times the offense ran through the post. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to see the Elijah Wands, Patrick Ewings, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's, the Bill Waltons, even though Lord knows it pains me to say that name because sometimes this color commentary lacks color. But, <laughs> you know, I've I seen the game the way the game was meant to be played. And sometimes the physicality of the game back then would probably warrant flagrant fouls today. So now the game has gone from physical dominance to pretty and finesse. The game used to be so physically dominant, even a six-foot-six guard, if you thought you was coming down lane to throw down and posterize somebody, you might find yourself getting picked up off the floor. Anymore nowadays, the game is a free pass to the goal. What can we do to bring the dominance back that we used to have? I'm more a true center. I mean, so when you look at the true centers, I mean, the, the game itself, like, it's evolving. Like, you're not going to have a true center no more. Like, back to the basket, you know. I mean, when you think about it, Joel Embiid is, like, like probably a true center. But he's, you know, he's evolving too. But, um, I mean, that's the only one when you think about it in today's NBA, like, who can really post somebody up when they want, when he wants to. And get any basket that he wants. I mean, it, it's something about that post-up move, knowing that it's coming, and you can't stop them, and then they just tear the rim down on you. Mm-hmm. It's something about that. They just and then they look yeah. at you. Then they look at like you. a don, like a like a pure like a shack when he was in like, like a, that, right like a shack right. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it is it has gotten to the point to where now they used to say. Only thing that Giannis Antetokounmpo can do is go down lane and dunk on you. Well, now he's going to add a little three-point repertoire to his game as well, too. But I, I like the sheer dominance of the big man in the paint, and there's nothing you can do to stop it because then that creates openings because I think the NBA game is going to end up killing the college game because now nobody wants to work on the fundamental inside post moves Everybody wants to shoot the three ball. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the percentages, percentages will tell you everybody's not equipped to shoot the three ball. So if you mm-hmm. want the three points, do it, go back to the old traditional way. I guarantee you it'll work. I guarantee you this. It'll cause more fouls on the other team. It'll make your bigs even have to start practicing shooting free throws. Now, give me your counterpoint because I know you got a counterpoint. I know that what I said made sense to you, but I know you got a counterpoint for that, though, don't you? No, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, for real, um, 
I, I just think that I don't know if the game right now is gonna is ready to go back to what it was. You know, um, I don't think that. Especially now, you're gonna have to actually. It's gonna have to actually have to start like in a high school level when in terms of when it comes to actually developing the players to actually doing what you want them to do now, because now, especially if they're in college now, they're not gonna they're not gonna back up and you know post somebody up and do what they gotta do, um, because even for instance, the dude from Iowa, what's his name, Luca Luca Garza. Yeah, that's all he do is post up and get baskets. But is he talked about as a number one draft prospect or anything like that? No, because like what? Like who wants that? Like no one's not gonna want. Like you know. So I don't know. I th- I just think that the whole game is gonna take. It's gonna take from high school level on up to to bring that level of play back or that solid play back. I get you. I get you. So basically, it's gonna have to start probably even before the high school level. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess you can say before, but, you know, middle school, I mean, they're not doing nothing in middle school. Middle school, they don't. In middle school, they want you to jack up shots. and. Well, I, you know what? Now, when I was growing up, we called it junior high. and Okay, yeah. My, my gym teacher was also a basketball coach, and they would alternate mm-hmm. between him and other one each year, you know, who was going to do the varsity. His name mm-hmm. is John Nash. And high school coaches loved it when his players – came to the high school level because his players had the fundamentals dribbling passing shooting layups not only layups with your right hand if you're right hand you was also learn layup with your left hand so i mean his players had the fundamentals his name is john nash he's here in wichita he's been long since retired but matter of fact he taught me a valuable lesson too and i somebody knew better uh, my, I grew up saying yes, sir, no, sir, and you know, whatever the coach's name was, it was coach and whatever his last name was. And I got beside myself and I was calling by his first name, Hey, John, how you doing, John? Hey, John. And he never did say nothing. One time he gave him this look. But man, me and the class, we suffered because the cheerleaders came in the locker room area. And we back there having a blast, like, woo, yeah, woo, woo. Ooh, whistle, cat calls and everything. He came out there, shut all that down. He said, y'all come back to gym class the next day. We having cake and ice cream. He said, and Smith, he called me out. You going to get in trouble for calling me out by my first name. So now mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out what is cake and ice cream. Mm. Never Never heard nobody say we're gonna have cake and ice cream in gym class. Well, the next day we waiting for cake and ice cream. It never happened. Right. Nothing happened. We had to have regular gym class. Well, the next week came, and man, we suffered. We did calisthenics <laughs> the whole time. Push-ups, setups, burpees, or whatever you want to call them. We did everything the coach could think of. It wasn't no playing basketball, wasn't no activity. He broke us down to this day when I see him. If it ain't at church, hey, Coach Nash, how you doing? Hey, Brother Nash, how you doing? Yeah, I know his first name, but I ain't about to call it. (laughs) (laughs) It was that respect. 
but he he was one of those coaches that taught the fundamentals and that's what we need to get back to is the fundamentals because anybody can shoot but can you put the ball in the hoop and the easiest way to do that if your three point and that's the thing a lot of these players need to realize too if your three-point shot isn't working if you got other aspects to your game work the other aspects of your game then it'll open up your three-point shoot that's that's my whole theory right there any comments no you're right i don't have no no rebuttals no nothing because i can guarantee you even if you look at the college level i bet a lot of those three-point percentages at your major schools i bet your three-point percentage is going way down Oh, well, of course, if you're Gonzaga, you're probably saying, dang, Baylor just shot lights out. Of course, Baylor thrived on defense. Their their defense is what caused a lot of that havoc. Uh, another thing to look at, you notice a lot of the upsets in the tournament and the chaos it caused afterwards. Shaka Smart knew his days were probably numbered. He takes the high road. He goes back to his home state, Wisconsin. Takes the Marquette job. You talk about adding fuel to the fire. Schools in Texas do not like Texas. They may have rivaled amongst themselves, Texas Tech, TCU, whatnot. But when you ask who their most hated school in the state of Texas, it's the Longhorns. And to add fuel to that fire, Texas. You know why it's only you know why it's the Longhorns, though. Because for the longest, the Longhorns have, was the cream, was the creme de la creme in terms of universities in Texas. Like, you know, even in like, and I'm not even talking about in sports, I'm talking about even in academics. But now, you know, everybody was elevated, Texas Tech, Texas A&M, and everybody like that. They, you know, they've gotten better, in, in not only in the academic-wise, but sports-wise, too. And Texas have just downgraded, so... Now they're now since everybody's elevated and Texas is hitting kind of a lull. Now it's time for them to, you know, well, now it's time for other other universities are and their fan bases to talk talk their mess about Texas because they're on their little down a little downfall, you know, especially mm-hmm. in football. Because Texas hasn't won anything in football in God knows how long. Right. Basketball this year they were actually formidable in basketball. Yeah, they kind of stunk it up in the tournament, but yep, I mean, they, they were still good. I don't think Shaka Smart should have lost it. I don't think he was going to lose his job, to be honest with you. But, but his seat was getting kind of warm. Right. I mean, it was warm, but I don't think he was going to get fired. And it was probably sizzling after that loss to ACU. Yeah, I mean, but I don't think, and, I don't think and, he would have got fired. And knowing the administration that they have now, as opposed to the administration that they had when Mac Brown and uh, what's the coach of Tennessee's name? Rick Barnes. Rick Barnes was there. They don't have that same administration. And the administration they have now is when now are you replaceable? So I think Shaka knew something was up. So he said, "See, I'm gone." Well, see, but, I don't but, know because I don't think they're. I think they're tired of playing paying buyouts because Tom Herman has got a massive buyout from his contract. Uh, hell, I think they're still playing on, off of Charlie Strong stuff too. I think. So I don't know. I mean, that, I don't think he was going to get fired. That's that's the impatience of those boosters. But look here, we got thirty seconds here. So real quick, in thirty less than thirty seconds. How nasty does the rivalry get between Texas Tech and Texas now? In 20 seconds. Oh, it's going to be pretty nasty. It'll be nasty. Absolutely. 
All right, well, you've been listening to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Next week, I'm going to get Smokey back on. We're going to do at least a one-hour show. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.